The priest sat by the telephone, the weight of what he'd experienced setting heavily on his mind. Ever since he'd visited, a sickness had been with him, and one that his doctors just couldn't identify. Something in the house had poisoned him, had made him ill, and raised bleeding blisters on his body. It was days earlier that they'd asked him to bless the house, and his blood chilled to remember it. A deep and dark voice from within the home had ordered him to leave, before striking him violently across the face with an invisible force. He had to tell them. He had to warn the Lutzes to stay out of that house in Amityville. A truly warm welcome to you all, dearest listeners, to Channel FM's broadcast. I am Thomas, disciple of Dagon, and your horrible host for the next 20 plus minutes or so. For those joining us for the first time, here at Channel FM, we discuss unsolved mysteries, true crime, ghost stories, folk tales, creepy cryptids, and everything else aimed at raising the hairs on the back of your neck. This is our sixth episode, and the second half of the two-part broadcast focused on the infamous home at 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, the house of the Amityville Horrors. If you've not yet listened to the episode before this, I would recommend that you do so in order to learn all the juicy details. Everyone loves a good haunted house story, and this might be one of my personal favourites. But before we get started, a special message for a select few. For all of you who stubbed your toe today, for all of you who might be struggling with something personal, and for everyone named Oliver, you all have our special shout-out for this episode. In the previous broadcast, we spoke to you of the gruesome DeFeo murders, in which Ronald DeFeo Jr. killed his mother, stepfather, and four younger siblings. Methodically, he walked, stalking room to room, gunning down the family as they lay asleep in their beds. What was his motive for such? Well, if you believe Ronald Jr., it was due to the terrifying and supernatural entities that lived in that house. Malevolent spirits of darkness that tortured him day and night, forcing Junior to kill his whole family in order to feed their demonic hunger. In this episode, we'll speak of the family that moved in after this terrible incident, the Lutz family, and the 28 days of blood-curdling paranormal activity that made their lives a living hell. I will preface by stating that I treat very little here as absolute fact, this is a divisive topic, and almost everyone involved, closely or loosely, has given many different interviews over the years. To some, this is paramount evidence of the supernatural, and that there are things that operate beyond our current earthly realm. To others, it's the fabricated story of a few rotten individuals who only wanted to get rich and famous off a poor family's murders. As with all our stories, I'll go over the dramatic accounts that were given, and then the judgments, findings, and theories that are associated with them. This way, it is my hope that you all can come to your own conclusions. What we know of these 28 days mainly comes from the Lutz family themselves, and from author Jay Anson's book, aptly named The Amityville Horror. Anson used over 45 hours worth of interviews as a basis for his book, which quickly became a bestseller and inspiration for the classic horror film of the same name, and inspired countless other books, games, and films after it. The film has, as films do, embellished and fabricated some of the accounts given for the visual medium, so for now, we'll stick to what was mentioned in the book and interviews given. 
While Ronald Jr. spent his time in prison, the house stood empty for over a year. It was a looming spectre of brick and mortar, a dark stain upon an otherwise pleasant neighbourhood. Parents told their children not to stay near the house. People crossed the street to avoid passing it by. The building grew from the troubled neighbour to a place of notoriety and legend. Thirteen months after the murders, a notoriously unlucky number and an ill omen of things to come, neighbours watched with bated breath as a new family moved into the building. The Lutz family, with parents George and Kathleen, and Kathleen's young children from a previous marriage, Daniel, Christopher, and Melissa. The family dog, Harry, joined them also. They purchased the house for $80,000, incredibly cheap for a 4,000 square foot home on the canal, complete with a swimming pool and a bathhouse. George would later describe it as a dream come true, a dream that would soon turn into a nightmare. The family had been informed of the murders that had occurred there, but similar to the introduction of every haunted house film, they didn't believe in the neighbourhood gossip. DeFeo's stories of possessions and hauntings were disregarded, at least enough so that they moved in quite happily. I don't know about you, dear listener, but I would at least give it some thought. This would soon turn out to be a decision that would quite literally come back to haunt them. A friend of George Lutz was understandably worried upon learning where exactly they would be moving to, and encouraged the family to have a priest come and bless the house. George knew a Catholic priest named Father Ralph Pecoraro, although he's called Father Ray in the book for privacy reasons, and he agreed to come and bless the family's new home. Father Pecoraro was a lawyer, a judge of the Catholic court, and a psychotherapist. Not exactly someone you'd consider an unreasonable or unreliable witness. As Father Pecoraro arrived at the house, the family was still in the process of moving in. There were smiles and laughter as they moved boxes and furniture into the home, the very picture of a family full of hope at the new beginning they were embarking on. But something about it made Father Pecoraro very uncomfortable. He knew the stories of the house, and what horrible acts had been committed within it. The family waited outside as he prepared to bless the building, giving him space to do just that. The father began in the room Kathy wished to use as a sewing room, intending to work outwards, but as he raised the aspergillum to cast his holy water with, a chill ran down his spine. His blood turned cold in his veins, and a heavy presence weighed on him. From deep within the empty house, a frightening and terrible voice echoed, GET OUT! After regaining his composure and leaving the house, Father Pecoraro, for whatever reason, chose not to tell George or Kathy what he experienced. The evil voice seemingly weighed on the father's mind, however, as six days later he would call George and advise him to stay out of that second floor room where he had heard the voice, but the call was cut short by a mysterious static. The room in question was the same room that John and Mark DeFeo were murdered in, aged only 12 and 9 at the time of their death, the two youngest siblings of their killer. Later, Father Pecoraro would state in an interview that the room was strangely cold as he began his blessings, and that at one point during the incident, something invisible slapped him hard across the face. Bewildered and confused, he looked around the room for his attacker, but there was nobody there. In the days after the blessings, Father Pecoraro developed flu-like symptoms and unexplainable blisters on his hands that began to bleed, similar to stigmata. His doctors were baffled, and chalked it all up to stress. 
After the family finally and fully moved into the house, the terrible paranormal activity started almost immediately. Swarms of flies would infest their home despite the cold winter temperatures of December. Strange and foul odours would permeate the entire house, an odour that made you sick and nauseous. Black stains would appear in their bathroom seemingly overnight, an infection in the house that no manner of scrubbing or cleaning would remove, and specks of a sticky and gelatinous liquid would be found on the floor. No matter how hard the Lutz family tried, the house just wouldn't warm. The fireplace would burn day and night, but the house had a perpetual and never-ending ghostly chill that just wouldn't relent. As the days progressed, the incidents only became stranger, more violent, and horrifying. Kathy states in her interviews that, similar to Father Pecoraro, unseen creatures would strike and scratch her during her stay in the house, that invisible hands and claws would beat her and leave bloodied marks upon her body. When she hung a crucifix upon the wall in a futile attempt to ward off the phenomena, she later found it inverted, a symbol often used to mock Christ and God, and that it had a strange and sour smell. Missy Lutz, only five at the time, started speaking to an imaginary friend after moving into her new home. She told parents that her friend's name was Jody, and that she would appear to her in various different shapes – an angel, a cat, a large pig with glowing red eyes, and more. Those of you who are seasoned veterans of the paranormal will know that demonic and poltergeist spirits are said to take many forms, but usually shapes aimed at disarming the viewer and appearing harmless. On its own, this isn't that scary. After all, kids have imaginary friends all the time, regardless of whether or not your house is reported to be haunted. However, when you mix it in with the mountain of other reports, it might be. There's also the specific incident in which the Lutz family claimed to have seen cloven hoof prints in the snow outside their house on the 1st of January. The cloven hooves of Judy the pig, perhaps. Some state that there was no snow that night on the 1st of January, but this might simply be a case of mistaken dates. Nearly every morning at 3.15am, George would mysteriously and violently awaken in his bed. Listeners of our previous broadcast will know that this is roughly the same time that Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered his family. One night, George heard a terrible banging from his children's rooms, the slamming of their beds against the floorboards echoing throughout the entire house, but he was unable to do anything about it as an invisible and powerful presence held him down in his bed. Another night, he awoke to find his wife levitating above the bed they slept in, the children had also started sleeping on their stomachs, which is exactly how the bodies of the DeFeo children were found after their murder. In the book, the Lutzes declined to say what happened to them on their last day in the Amityville house, stating that it was simply too frightening to go into. On January 24th, 1976, only 28 days after they'd moved into their new home, the Lutz family fled from it in terror. They decided that enough was enough, and that they just couldn't stay. They felt that only harm awaited if they remained, with the incidents only increasing in danger and violence that something life-threatening would happen soon. The family stayed at Kathy's mother's house in nearby Deer Park, New York, but they claimed that the horrors stalked them there, following them to their new home. One night, the eerie chill returned, and a greenish-black slime oozed from the bottom steps and ascended towards them. They refused to re-enter their home at Amityville, and sent a mover to relocate their furniture in their stead, though he reported no strange goings-on while he was there. 
In between the Lutzes fleeing the home and the publishing of the Amityville Horror, a number of paranormal experts investigated the home. Most notably, Dr. Stephen Kaplan, a self-styled vampirologist and ghost hunter, and Ed and Lorraine Warren, who you may know from their many published works, interviews, or their depiction in the famous Conjuring movie franchise. Kaplan was reported to have fallen out with the Lutzes during his investigation, to the extent that he vowed to expose any and all fraud and deception that he would find. He went on to write a book titled The Amityville Horror Conspiracy, with his wife which did just that. Kaplan states in his book that he received a call from George Lutz shortly after they left the house. In it, they discussed terms and payment for hiring Kaplan and his team to investigate the house, but that George curtly cancelled the investigation and ended the call when Kaplan stated, If the story is a hoax, the public will know. The Lutzes have defended themselves against allegations made by Kaplan by stating that his claims to be a vampirologist made them skeptical of his authenticity, and that he lied and claimed to have a PhD that he didn't actually have. Ed and Lorraine Warren are probably best known for their work in Amityville, though they had a long and established history as paranormal experts. You may also know them as the then-guardians of the haunted doll named Annabelle, or their work with the Perrin family or the Enfield poltergeist. Ed was a self-proclaimed demonologist, while Lorraine claimed she was a clairvoyant and medium, and the two of them used their gifts together on their cases. While Kaplan was convinced that the hauntings were a hoax, Ed and Lorraine found it to be quite the opposite. Lorraine states that the house had an overwhelming and smothering feeling of horrible depression. They believed that the Amityville Horror was the work of a powerful and evil demonic presence, that it lived unseen within the house and brought violence and terror to anyone who lived there, feeding off the fear it caused. The Warrens believed that they had even captured an entity on an automatic camera set on the second floor. I'll include a link to it in the description, but to describe it for the listeners now, it's a grainy black and white photograph of two open doors behind a staircase. On the left side of the picture, a small and pale child peers out of the bedroom door and towards the camera flash over the banister of the staircase. He has messy bed hair and looks almost confused as he looks forward. The most striking thing about the photograph is his eyes. Two dots of pure and bright white where his eyes should be. No detail, no iris, no colour, just a brilliant and frightening white. I'm looking at the picture now, dear listener, and it's it's raising the hairs on my arms. I've got goosebumps, and I'm I'm not sure why. The picture shows nothing grotesque, no, no gruesome sights, but just something about it feels inherently wrong. Many people have claimed to have been part in a supposed hoax over the years, such as one William Weber who claims to have had a meeting with George and Kathy Lutz, in which they fabricated the story that would become Anson's book over many bottles of wine. In the book, the Lutzes claim that one explanation for the supernatural activity might be that the house was built upon a site used by Shinnecock Indians, that they would leave the sick, the dying, and the mentally ill there to pass away. This was later deemed to be false by Native American leaders, however. Some of you may be thinking right now, well, the logical thing seems to be to test them, right? Give them a lie detector test. In fact, dear listener, they did just that. Chris Gugas and Michael Rice, who were held as two in the top five polygraph experts in America, questioned George and Kathy Lutz over the validity of their claims. Chris was even a student of the inventor of the polygraph test, so I'd like to think he knew what he was doing. 
The Lutz's results, in Rice's opinion, did not indicate that they were lying. I can hear you again thinking, but of course, you can fake a lie detector test if you know how. You can, of course, dear listener, but again, if you know how. It's not impossible for both George and Kathy to have passed the tests if they were secretly taught how, but I'll leave you to decide just how likely that is. Another piece of evidence that the story may be a hoax comes from James and Barbara Cromerty, who purchased the house in 1977 and lived there for 10 years. They state that nothing peculiar or dangerous ever happened while they lived there. In fact, the strangest thing the family faced were the fans of the Amityville horror book who kept visiting unannounced to see the house for themselves. If there really was a demonic entity living in the home, did it just leave? Or did it decide not to bother the Cromertys for some reason? And there we have it, dearest listener. When I promised you a ghost story in the previous broadcast, I did state that it was far too much for just one average-sized segment. I can only imagine what the Lutz family felt, if it is indeed genuine, as they lived there within the house. The dark and horrific unseen presence surrounding you at all times during day and night. The hairs on the back of your neck rising to warn of this invisible threat. The primal and ancient response to being watched from the darkness by a hidden predator. Fetid smells of rotting meat and foul breath. Clouds of buzzing insects that just shouldn't exist. Deep and threatening shouts from within an empty house. The shifting and banging of furniture in vacant rooms. And your daughter's imaginary friend that leaves hoofprints in the fresh snow. Ethereal, evil creatures that leave bruises and bloody scratches upon your body. How do you defend yourself against something you can't see? How do you protect your family from an entity who knows no fear, who knows no mercy, whose only need and drive is to bring misery, pain, and death to you and your loved ones? You can't bargain with it, you can't placate it, you can only suffer. The latest plaything of a demonic creature in a cursed and terrible house. But what's your belief, dear listener? Did the Lutzes experience something truly supernatural? Are the Warrens to be believed and a terrible entity resides within the home? Is this all a hoax simply to drum up fame and money, or is it all one big misunderstanding of some sort? As always, I'd be interested in hearing what you think, so let me know. The end of that segment brings us sluggishly onto this broadcast's Cryptid of the Week, the Olgoi Korkoi, or, as you're more likely to know it, the Mongolian Deathworm. The Gobi Desert is an expansive area from north and northeast China to southern Mongolia. While the majority of it is exposed rock and sand, there's also areas of grassland and brush too, with more of it being turned to desert with each passing year. It's the sixth largest desert in the world as of this broadcast, and it's a place of buried history. The first ever positively identified dinosaur eggs were found in the Gobi Desert, for example. There's also the decrepit ruins of the Great Wall of China that runs through it. It's a beautiful place, untamable and wild, a testament to nature's strength in shades of warm golds and burnt amber, a spattering of jagged and beautiful rocks with sweeping yellow dunes. As such, it's understandable why people come here for recreational and entertainment reasons. People love to camp out in the traditional yurt tents and travel the desert on the backs of camels. You can scout for dinosaur fossils, enjoy the sunrise and the starry night skies, or sandboard on the dunes. 
It's for the last reason that you and a friend have come to do just that. It's not as popular as snowboarding, but it's still a fun way to exercise. Racing down the side of an always changing slope, hot air whipping by as you plummet as fast as gravity and weight will take you. After a long day of it, you stop to pack away your boards into the four-wheel off-road that you've rented, something that travels the sands as safely and quickly as possible. You could camp in the deserts overnight, but in all honesty, you just can't be bothered. The sand gets everywhere, and after a long day of sweat and grime, you'd just rather end the day back in civilization with a shower and a comfortable bed. You shake the sand out of your clothes as best you can while your friend gets in one last slide. You watch from the shade of the 4x4, the air conditioning cranked all the way up, and watch from the window as she climbs the tall dune beside you. It takes about a minute, but eventually, with a large grin, she sets her board down on the sand and gives you a thumbs up. You return the gesture, and wait. She turns for a moment, looking around the beautiful area about her, but a shift of movement catches your eye. A ripple in the sand, barely there, visible for only a fraction of a second before it's gone. The only remnant it was ever there is the gentle trickle of sand descending the surface of the dune, otherwise you might believe you'd imagined it. Your friend is completely unaware, and you try to signal her with various pointing motions and a shout, worrying about a snake or something, but she brushes it off with a dismissive wave. Just before she readies to descend, she turns for a moment, peering to the further side of the dune away from you. You glimpse a flash of a confused expression before she looks away, turning left and right as if searching for something. She bristles, and you watch, confused as she looks down. A sharp movement as she turns forward, moving back to the board, but she stops dead just before reaching it. Her body goes rigid, as if struck by lightning, and she tumbles violently towards you. You open the door to the 4x4 and leap from the truck, racing to catch her before she sprains or breaks anything as she rolls. Worry soon turns to abject fear as you spot the undulation once more, heavier and wider this time, growing as it follows her down. From a slight groove to a heavy bump, far larger than you expected, you freeze in uncertainty, the hairs rising on the back of your neck, and like a deer caught in the headlights, all you can do is watch as the blood-red creature bursts forth from the sands. A long and worm-like creature, about as wide as your head, coloured a deep crimson made up of various segments and no visible limbs, ears, eyes, or nose. It ends in a lamprey-like mouth, a gaping circular maw lined with dozens upon dozens of jet-black fine teeth, each one a pointed needle of onyx. Silently, with a sharp jerk, it latches its teeth around the leg of your paralysed, tumbling friend and snatches her back into the heavy blanket of the sands once more. It all happened in less than a minute, and now the only sign that she was ever there to begin with is the board that lazily, slowly, vacantly, comes to rest at the base of the dune at your feet. What you've just seen is the Mongolian Deathworm, a flesh-eating cryptid that is said to live in the western and southern Gobi Desert. While it isn't the largest cryptid, said to be some two feet or so in length, the way it hunts for its prey is unique among desert creatures. The creature is capable of unleashing an electric shock, similar to an electric eel, designed to stun or kill their would-be meal before eating it once it is powerless to resist. It's also said to be capable of spitting a deadly poison, though some reports say it's more of an acidic substance than simple poison. It spends the vast majority of its time underground, coming to the surface rarely, and usually only to hunt. 
There's been a number of attempts to verify the existence of this shocking Mongolian legend, but most of them have come up dry. People have employed thumper-like devices or explosions, similar to how you'd attract sandworms in Frank Herbert's novel Dune, but nothing came up. With not much in the way of recent sightings or reports, at least as far as I can find, it seems this legend may have been a case of mistaken identity, or the creature has met its end. It could even be the product of hallucinations in the desert, how a person mad from dehydration and sun can see things in the sand, an illusion of near death from heat. But what's your belief, dear listener? Are you an avid deathworm believer, or is this all a bunch of dust? Mistaken identity, or merely a product of folklore? As always, let me know. We've come to the end of the broadcast, and it's about time that I send you all off with today's frightening fact. Most people like dogs, right? I'm sure you do, listener. You might be a cat person like me, but chances are even if you prefer cats, you probably think that dogs are very cute too. But do you happen to know why dogs love squeaky toys so much? Well, it turns out that some experts believe the main reason that dogs love to chomp down on a squeaky toy is because it satisfies their prey drive, the instinct a predator has to hunt. And why is that? Because the squeaking of the toy sounds similar to the screams of an injured animal, the last death knell of the prey as it succumbs to the killing blow of the predator. Not so cute now, are they? Take care, dear listener, and have a pleasant rest of your day. The songs used in this episode are titled Terminal, SCP-X6X, Long Note 1, Long Note 2, and Thunderbird. They are made by Kevin MacLeod and are licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. His website is in Computech.com and he makes excellent music. Give him a look and a listen.